Last week we were in Mark 13, and Pastor Dave preached on the abomination of desolation. We'll be taking a break from Mark, but we will be speaking of another abomination, and that is the sin of homosexuality and same-sex marriage. I'll use that term. We know that it's not truly a marriage, but for common ground, we will use that term so you know what I'm talking about. For the past month, and not just for the past month, for, for years now, the world has been trying to teach us how we should think about sexual ethics, and for this reason, I'm going to be preaching a topical sermon on homosexuality, and every June, I believe we plan on speci- uh, addressing this specific sin. I'm sure you're thinking, we made it through June, we almost made it without a sermon on this. No, we will address this, and it will continue to be addressed. Uh, the cultural Marxists and postmodernists of our day have been working very hard to ensure that the lies of the devil are echoed through every medium at their disposal. And after a while, I'm sure there may be a few of us who may begin to second guess ourselves. There are many people even on social media, some who call themselves wise theologians, who have made their case known before the world, pretending they have any sincere concern for what God has said, and maybe their arguments have had its intended effect upon you from one degree to another. And so in light of that, it's appropriate that we revisit this issue, answer some questions, and ultimately see what God has said, having our minds reoriented around the truth of God's word pertaining to sexual behavior. And to be upfront, as we often say here, I'm not going to apologize for anything that I say this morning. Though many pretend the Bible is murky with regard to sexual ethics, it is not. God's word is not ambiguous about same-sex relationships. The Bible speaks loudly and clearly on this subject, and where the Bible speaks loudly and clearly, we should speak loudly and clearly. We ought not mince our words to whisper truths just because the culture demands it. We must use our words to speak the truth and love with clarity and directly, not only to name the sin, but to also clearly and directly preach the forgiveness of sins to these people. And one of the primary reasons that we should not, that we should hold to what God has said with regard to sexual sin is because if at any point we begin to minimize sin, we lose the gospel. If we keep the law of God from the ears of the people, how will they know that they are sinners? And if they don't know that they are sinners, what motivation do they have to look for a savior? They won't. If there is no sin, there will be no repentance. And if there is no repentance, there is no salvation. We must not be silent on the issue. And hear this. If we are willing to compromise truth within the realm of sexual ethics, don't be so naive to think that you won't compromise truth anywhere else. Right? We must stand firm here and ensure that we don't drift later on down the road. We should not be ashamed of what the word of God says no matter how much the world attempts to shame us into agreeing with them. And so we will treat the sin of same-sex marriage the same as we would any other. We don't celebrate murder, we don't celebrate adultery or fornication, and we certainly don't celebrate same-sex fornication. Now, there are many self-professed Christians who have adopted the exact same worldview and sexual ethic that was birthed out of the Enlightenment, or as some have called it, the Endarkenment. The age of the Enlightenment throughout the 17th and 18th centuries was an age where men esteemed themselves highly. They thought themselves to belong to an age of reason and science, bringing forth human progress and achievement, which was centered around man's knowledge, autonomy, and happiness, and the Enlightenment was committed to sexual liberation. 
And those within this movement viewed the church as an oppressive institution that hindered human progress and caused great harm by enforcing monogamy. Many would say back then, and still say today, that if only people were free to indulge in the passions of the flesh, to be themselves, that we would find ourselves in a better and more free world. And that sentiment is true today. We hear that all the time. And this, the Enlightenment has consequently brought forth many secular revolutions throughout our world. We have suffered under feminism, the sexual revolution of the 60s, and today all these revolutions have come to a pointed head, and we are now enduring the LGBT movement, which is, of course, the uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, and trans movement, which are not compatible, but I will not go there. <clears throat> and the reason why I mentioned this, the Enlightenment brief, briefly is so that we would be those who understand the times. Uh, the LGBT movement is not a random ideology that suddenly appeared out of thin air. There's a worldview behind it. And it's not a worldview rooted out of love for God and his word. Rather, it is based upon a worldview promoted by those who desire to unhitch themselves from their creator and will even go against the very clear laws of nature in order to do so. The chief end of this movement is to glorify men. That's its purpose. It's to gratify the desires of the flesh, unhinged from any moral absolute, absolutes, and consequently, when men live contrary to the word of God, it brings ruin and destruction and disorder to society. And more importantly, it brings out a serious eternal consequence, which is eternal death, where souls will be eternally separated from the blessed face of the God who made them. And so my goal today is not to really connect these things together. I just want us to see that this has roots um, that there are worldviews at play. There's two that cannot exist together. It's Christ or chaos, right? That's, that's what we have. They are fundamentally opposed to one another. And so today I want us to have a biblical framework for why we believe the things um, that God has said about marriage. We need a foundation that, which we, could, that we can stand on. <clears throat> and so we'll be looking at Genesis 2, 15 through 24 this morning. We'll get a good foundation for what God has said regarding marriage and sexual ethics. And then we will consider some of the arguments of the pro-LGBT apologists. And then we will consider how we should live in light of them. So if you please stand as we read from God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Genesis 2, 15 through 24. Forgive me, 218. 218. <clears throat> then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, 
took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. We ask that you prepare our hearts and minds to receive the truth meekly this morning. May your holy scriptures govern every part of our lives. Teach us where we are ignorant. Give us faith where we are weak. Give us understanding and correct us if we may be in error. We ask these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. May be seated. In the first two chapters of Genesis, we are given uh, the created order or the revelation of the created order. We learn that the all-knowing, self-sufficient, and sovereign God created the heavens, the earth, and all things in them. And in chapter 1, God speaks everything into existence. God spoke, saying, let there be light, and there was light. He said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, creating the atmosphere above and the water below. He said, let the waters gather into one place and the dry land appear and creating continents and oceans. He brought forth vegetation. He brought forth fish to populate the waters and birds to rule the sky. But when he speaks of creating mankind, the language that is used is a lot different. God forms mankind in a more personal way. God doesn't just speak us into existence. The triune God says, let us form man in our image. And so man is distinct from the rest of creation. God formed mankind from the dust, the ground, and then he breathed life into his nostrils, and the man became a living creature. We have souls, we have consciences, we are sentient beings. While all creation bears witness to this creator, we are the only creatures among all of creation who bear the image of this mighty God who made us. Whereas all of of God's creation puts his glory on display, human beings do so in a unique way. We imitate the communicable attributes of God. We love, we desire justice, we show compassion. The rest of the creator world cannot do these things. And God, in his infinite wisdom, has created all things to work in harmony together for his glory. For each part... He's given a counterpart in his creation. He made the heavens and the earth, day and night, waters and land, beautiful plants that are scattered among the earth and bright stars to line the night sky, the sun to rule over the day and the moon to rule over the night. And God, again, has created all these things for a specific purpose to function in certain ways in their particular domains. In short, God has imposed limits upon his creation in creating them. And this is very important for us to remember. God, as the maker of all things, has the right to determine how creature is to live. He has the right to put limits on them and has the right to command their function in this world. Right? Job 38 speaks of this. God has established bars and doors to shut in the sea, saying, Thus far you shall come and no further. He has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and makes the way for the thunderbolt, telling it where it is to strike. 
And the same God who has placed boundaries for the sun, the moon, the seas, the rain, has also set boundaries for mankind. There are things that are lawful, and there are things that are unlawful. The things that we do are either in alignment with the law of God, or in disagreement with the word of God. To put this in perspective, it's not good for a bird to plunge into the depths of the ocean and remain there, right? It will die. It's not made for it. If it could go into the depths of the ocean for a long enough time, it would be crushed by the pressures of the water. It's not good for a whale to remain on the beach. It will die. And so it is for mankind. If we live apart from the purposes for which we were created, we bring harm to our bodies and dishonor to the God who made us. So God has placed boundaries around marriage and sexual behaviors in his word. God alone defines what marriage is. He has revealed to us what context the sexual relationship should occur and what types of activity is lawful. In Genesis chapter 2, what we have just read, we see the first marriage ceremony. Adam was alone, and God says it was not good for him to be alone. It's not good for the image bearer of God to be alone. Again, remember, consider that the beasts of the field had their counterpart. The fish had their counterpart. The sun has its counterpart. The earth has its. But Adam, the one image bearer of God, had no counterpart. And God said, this is not good for him. And so God formed a helper for him. He formed a woman. He did not give Adam an animal to be a lifelong companion. He did not give Adam a tree or a fruit to be a lifelong companion. He did not give Adam another man. He gave him a woman. And this woman was created by God and formed from the rib of Adam, symbolizing that the man and woman are for each other. Each one has a specific purpose. They are for each other and made together. Man and woman are distinct. I think it's pretty obvious. Well, to a lot of the world, it's not so obvious. We have different roles. We have different biology. We think different. We look different. And the biology that God has given to men and women dictates what men and women can and cannot do. This is God's design, and it's good. It's for a purpose. Men need women, and women need men. Men are charged to be the head of the household, and women are to be the helpers as they both come alongside loving one another to fulfill a common goal or purpose. Our society thinks that marriage is nothing more than a social construct that has no real meaning. This is why we see so many couples living together with no intention to give themselves over to marriage. Many wrongly believe that marriage is merely a product of evolution, which may have been necessary at one point in time, but now has little relevance for the world. And if they think it's merely a social construct and not a created order or institution by God, then the concept of marriage can change as the culture changes. Who says a wife cannot have three husbands? Who says a man can't have three wives? Why should I get married at all? Why can't I just be with whoever I want intimately? Our, our, culture, our culture thinks that marriage is a cruel institution, much like the thinkers of the Enlightenment who echoed the sentiment that it's cruel to force two people together who no longer love one another. And because people think marriage is an outdated, cruel contract with no binding authority, our country has adopted legislation which makes things like divorce increasingly easy. 
we have easy access to those things. Not only does our culture devalue marriage, but also our culture has become increasingly androgynous, which also causes further complications to this issue, meaning that male and female distinctions have become blurred, that a man can do anything a woman can do, and a woman can do anything a man can do. Right? A woman can now go on the front lines, kill for her country. The one who, has been, the one who is to be protected and has been designed to give life and to nurture is now the one who ends life. The man who is to be a provider for the home can now stay at home and be provided and cared for, happily forsaking his calling to care for his household. Some even say that men can get pregnant, right? And so as our culture delves deeper and deeper into androgyny and misunderstand the origins of marriage, they ultimately begin to ask these kinds of questions. Again, what's the difference between men and women? And consequently, they'll say, why can't a man marry a man or a woman marry a woman? There is no difference. It's all the same. But there is a difference, right? Male and female, he, male and female, he created them. And he created them for each other, for a purpose. God imposed upon Adam a helpmate. And God imposed upon Eve a leader. And it was good. And this is the model that we've been given for marriage, founded upon the created order. It is to be between one man and one woman, and every generation is to follow suit. In fact, if there are to be any further generations at all, they must follow suit. The future generations depend on cultures following this pattern. And this is exactly what we're told in Genesis 2, verse 24. Therefore, right, being as God had given Eve to Adam and Adam to Eve, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Marriage has many purposes, but for the sake of time, I'm going to list three of them. For the mutual, well, first is for the mutual help of the husband and wife. They are to help each other. Genesis 2.18, then the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Right? We know that men and women can do different things. We don't have the same abilities. We think differently. We reason differently. Nonetheless, nonetheless, our respective roles, in our respective roles, we are to come together and have a hand in having dominion over the world. I need my wife, and my wife needs me. If she didn't have me, she might not have any AC right now. And if I didn't have her, my house would be a wreck. Okay? The second purpose for marriage is the increase of mankind. Genesis 1.28, And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Just as God commanded the animals on the earth to multiply and fill the earth, in Genesis 1.22, the same command is given to mankind, right? And it is an inseparable part of the natural order that God had instituted in creation. This is the natural method of filling the earth. I don't think I need to really expound on this. I think we get it, right? You need man and woman to come together. Now, our culture calls this uh, concept heteronormity, right? It's a myth. That's what Bill C-4 calls it in Canada. Heteronormity is a myth that it's harmful to pe for people to believe that this is the normal and natural order of things, that man should come together with a woman, 
it's obviously not a myth. <laughs> it's proven over history. The myth is that you can have a culture that engages in these things and then continue to have cultures. It kills itself off. Thirdly, it is to be a picture of Christ's relationship to his church. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 5, 31 to 32. When speaking of the particular duties for husbands and wives in this passage, uh, he says in 31, Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's from Genesis 2.18 that we just read. And then he says, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. When Paul says mystery, he doesn't mean it's unknowable. What he's saying is that the mystery of the marriage union is made known and the coming of Christ. It's a mystery that has been revealed that the marriage between Adam and Eve was a type of the relationship between, between Christ and his church. Genesis 2, Genesis 2, all the way in Genesis 2, this prefigures Christ's coming and it foreshadows the gospel. John Gill gives much insight to this passage. To paraphrase him, the husband shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and become one flesh. This prefigures Christ leaving his father, coming into the world, in the incarnation, having a strong affection for his bride, and being joined in communion with them. Adam came before Eve. Christ was eternally before his church. A deep sleep came upon Adam and Eve, or it came upon Adam. And then Eve was formed out of the rib of the man. The church was birthed out of the death or the sleep and sufferings of Christ. We find our justification from the water and blood issued out of his side. And Eve was presented to Adam just as we are drawn by the Holy Spirit and so belong to Christ. It was not Eve's will that brought her into existence and presented herself to Christ but it was God's will, and God has chosen us and brought us and presented us and drawn us to his Son by the work of the Holy Spirit. Genesis 2 is a beautiful picture of the gospel indeed. Marriage was instituted at creation, and from the moment God established marriage, it was meant to be a beautiful picture of the gospel which was fulfilled in the coming of Christ. It's a mystery. It was a mystery that is now revealed. Those are the three purposes. Same-sex marriage cannot accomplish any of the purposes that God has set forth in marriage. First, man cannot be a mutual help within the roles that God has established within the household as a picture of Christ in the church. If the woman is to be a helpmate and the man is to be a leader, well, now you have a position where you have two leaders or two helpers. Men cannot properly fulfill that responsibility. And I'll get into that more in the third example. Second, men, two men and two women, cannot fulfill the command to go forth and multiply. It's absolutely not going to happen. I don't think I need to go into much detail, right? You cannot fulfill that command. Now, I want to be that I understand that there are many couples, married couples, who have suffered tremendously as they have sought for and prayed for children. And as it stands, they have not yet found success in that good pursuit. And what I want to make clear is that is not the same thing as those who participate in an act that cannot bring forth children. It's categorically different, 
right? They are not living within the natural order of things. You can honor God in your marriage. In the substance of that marriage, you can honor God. Same-sex marriage cannot. It's contrary to God's word. And third, it does not paint an, actu- an accurate picture between the rela- or of the relationship between Christ and his church. So Christ and his church, you have the head and the body. You have the leader and those who submit to the leader. The picture of Christ and his church is a picture of that beautiful union between two parties which are the same yet different. There is an otherness between Christ and his church. Different, that's where we get the word hetero from, right? Different, coming together. So we have Jesus Christ who is truly man, who is fully man in union with his bride which also consists of mankind. Yet at the same time, we have a union with one who is different. Jesus is fully God. We are not God. We are not the same. So in a sense, we are the same, yet also very different. We are distinct. Man with man is a mirror image. It's the same. It's identical. It's too similar. Woman and woman, same. It's identical. In the same sex marriage, you cannot operate according to Ephesians 5. A house with two men, again, you have two leaders. With two women, you now have no leader. It becomes an unbalanced house where there is either no tender care that must be present in the home and no protector. And to be clear, even if one is sensitive and more caring and one is more authoritative, it's still against the natural design of things. They may be outliers, but it goes against the command. And then you have examples of man and beast, right? Man and animals that will come eventually, as people keep talking about this stuff. This is different. It's too radically different. It's not even the same category. An animal is not an image bearer of God. God has imposed upon mankind limits and boundaries for human companionship and for flourishing in the created order and for the mutual help of the man and for the woman for the increase of mankind and for a picture as a picture of Christ and his church. And this is good. Again, God's law is not meant to bring injury to his creatures. It's for human flourishing. Rather, when men and women refuse to obey God's commands and create their own arbitrary standards, people get hurt. So remember this, that God has instituted it. God defines it. The government and our culture do not get to make the rules. So God is the one who's created marriage, defining what marriage truly is, has also placed boundaries around sexual behavior, right? The seventh commandment. We are all aware of this, or at least I hope we are. If people want to argue and say that the the created order is is not concrete enough, as if that doesn't condemn sodomy, Well, we don't have to worry because God has spoken clearly throughout the rest of the scriptures. Leviticus 18.22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Leviticus 20.13, if a male or if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Now, this text is pretty straightforward. It's so straightforward that throughout church history, uh, Christians everywhere have stood united in their understanding that this text forbids sodomy. There may be a disagreement on the purpose of the law. 
There may be distinctions of the law, how they interpret things a little bit differently, but the substance of the command is clear. Now, a popular objection made to this text is that Moses isn't really referring to homosexual activity. Instead, some argue that this is forbidding male temple prostitution uh, for the pagan gods and goddesses and pederasty. And pederasty is a relationship between men and boys where men prey upon children. And their argument lies in the distinction between the words man and male. It reads, if a man lies with a male as with, an, as with a woman, it's an abomination. The Hebrew word for man is ish, and the Hebrew word for male is zakr. So the text would read, if an ish lies with a zakr as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. Now some argue that while ish clearly refers to a man, that man is rightly interpreted man, they say that zakar refers to young boys. But Zakar has no focus on the age of the male, only the gender. So Zakar can refer to a male of any age. And it's biased to say that this referred refers to that this word refers to only young boys, when in fact the Hebrew language does have a word specifically for young men, for young children, young boys, and this word is nar. So all through Leviticus 20 the law lacks ambiguity regarding the genders and the specific relationships between the two people, right? If a man commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, if a man lies with his father's wife, if a man lies with his daughter-in-law, if a man takes a woman and her mother, as a son, sister of a daughter, or a father, or a daughter of his mother, they shall be cut off from the sight of the children. All through Leviticus 20, you have these distinctions of these relationships between people and the household. And then all of a sudden, Moses becomes ambiguous about a man lying with a man. That doesn't follow. That doesn't follow. And to hold to this argument practically renders Moses as being illiterate. Even worse than that, God, because God inspired scriptures. More than that, again, this text, both parties are to be put to death. So where in the Mosaic law can we find a single example where the victim is punished? The one sinned against gets punished. The relationships listed in Leviticus 20 are two consenting parties willfully joining together in acts that our Lord forbids. Some objectors will accuse us of being inconsistent, asking why we pick and choose what laws we want to obey in the Mosaic law. And again, I like what Vadi Bakum says here. He says, yes, we do pick and choose. And so do the unbelievers. The only difference is that Christians have a biblical foundation for what laws apply and what laws don't. Unbelievers don't. They can tell you stealing is wrong. They can't tell you why. They can tell you murder is wrong. They can't tell you why, unless it's children. And we know that there is a threefold division of the law. I believe all of us understand this pretty clearly. I'm not going to get in a lot of detail about this, but you have the civil laws, the ceremonial law, and the moral law. The civil laws have been abrogated as they're attached to the people of Israel as they dwelt in the land. Uh, general equity applies of these civil laws, right? There's wisdom to be gained from them. Ceremonial laws were fulfilled in Christ. The ceremonial laws were the sacrifices that were made. Christ is our sacrifice. Those laws have been abrogated. The moral law summed up in the Ten Commandments abides today, right? And the characteristic of the moral law is that death was required as punishment for those transgressions, 
and also that those sins were punished before the law was given, and it was punished on nations outside of the nation of Israel, which we see all through the Old Testament. A famous example would be Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Before the law was given, and Gentiles punished for sexual immorality. We also have many examples in the New Testament. I'm going to be brief with these because I think that we basically understand the concept of this. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, Neither the sexually immoral nor men who practice homosexuality will inherit the kingdom of heaven. 1 Timothy chapter 1, we are told the law was given for the ungodly and sinners. And among that list of ungodly sinners, the sexually immoral and men who practice homosexuality are named. And Paul uses the word, um, I'm not going to get into that. I think we all... um, Arsenokoitai, familiar with that term, right? <clears throat> Paul uses that word, and it's a, it means man betters. It's rooted from the Septuagint. That's where he gets it from, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And he uses this word to where we get the word homosexuality from, which is man betters, man who lay in bed with, with men. We see this in 1 Corinthians 7, 10, uh, or 7, verse 10 through 17. Paul addresses married couples and those who desire to be married within the church of Corinth. But before Paul gives these marital charges, he qualifies it with what he's about to say by reminding his readers, it's not I who says these things, but it's the Lord who gives this charge. Right? And he goes on to say this, to the married, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Right, all through this passage, we have distinctions and clarifications on marriage. Husbands and wives, wives and husbands. All through this passage, Paul doesn't seem to have a category for the homosexual within the church. He doesn't refer to how men should, should deal with their husbands and wives should deal with their wives because that was not a category for Paul. It was not acceptable to practice in the church. So again, I think we understand that God's word clearly condemns sodomy and same-sex relationships. We see it in the created order as he's created the marriage institution between Adam and Eve. It's commanded for the future generations. It's condemned um, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So why do people try to justify same-sex marriage or same-sex activity? They do so not because they love God's word, but because they love themselves. They hate the God who made them. And because they reject God, they also reject God's created order and his law. Ultimately, this question, this is a question of authority, right? That's what these people are asking. They ask, did God really say? Did God really say that a man lying with a man is an abomination? Our culture's argumentation is not founded upon the Holy Scriptures, though some would pretend it is, but it isn't. It is rooted in the desire to have complete bodily autonomy, and anything that would stand in the way of their bodily autonomy is an enemy. Right? Body autonomy is a, is a god today that's seen even in the pro-abortion argument. Right? It's my body. It's my choice. I can do whatever I want to do. It's not your right to tell me what I should and shouldn't do. It's a rejection of authority. And both the pro-abortion apologists and the pro-LGBT 
apologists are arguing for the same thing, which is unfettered sexual relations, and they want to be rid of any natural consequence for their actions. That's the foundation of it. It's lawlessness. It's antinomian. Our culture is full of antinomians, those who hate the law, they're anti-law. Romans 1, starting in verse 24, tells us the condition of these people. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women who were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their sin. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The cry of our nation is a cry of rebellion against the God that they know exists. God's judgment stands upon those who reject Christ, and God has given them over to the passions of their flesh. Passions of their flesh. They are ruled. Their passions determine where they go. It guides them. It leads them. They are slaves to their passions. It's unhinged. People will say anything to cast God's law away from themselves. They hate it, no matter how inconsistent their argumentation may be. It doesn't really matter to them because ultimately they aren't arguing for logical consistency. I think we've seen that clearly the past few days. They aren't arguing for truth. They are arguing to make excuses for their sinful choices. The Christian understanding of marriage and sexual ethics is not one invented by men. It is understood that God has created marriage for the specific purposes, for specific purposes, and that sex is to be practiced within certain parameters. The world sees God's design as too limiting, and it is limiting. The world thinks that sexual expression is the end goal. They think that this is the end goal of life, right? To glorify man, to live out your lusts. But we know that the scriptures teach us that it is to be given or that it's to be practiced within the context of committed fidelity to a lifelong spouse in the same way that we belong to Christ from now unto eternity. This relationship, this intercourse between married, a, marriage, uh, a married couple is like a meal, right? The meal when we sit down to eat, isn't the end goal. For some, some it may be, but it ought to be the communion that we have with the people that we dine with, right? It's, it's the fellowship that we have as we share a meal together. That's what sex is supposed to be between married people. But for the culture, 
their immoral behaviors are meaningless. It's like they're sitting at a dinner table alone with no true friend or lifelong companion across the table to share a meal with. Though they may share something together physically, they really have no true communion with each other. They think that whatever brings them sexual satisfaction is good, and everything that the LGBT community promotes blasphemes that which God has called good. This movement tramples on God's design that prefigures Christ, and in doing so, they abuse one another. Again, this intimacy between two people, anything outside of marriage is abuse. And this needs to be heard even among the church today. This is important. Judges 19 and Genesis 19, there are similar, these are parallel stories. There's an account of uh, the people assaulting this group in a house, having them thrown out to the streets to be assaulted in a Gentile nation. And then Judges 19, the same thing happens in the people of Israel. It's a picture that we can be influenced by the culture. We need to know that sexual immorality is sexual immorality the same, whether it's sodomy or heterosexual. Anything, any of these practices done outside of marriage is abuse. Al Martin gives an example here for those who are ruled by their passions, that it's like when your hands are wet and you need to dry them off, you grab a towel, you pick it up, you dry your hands off, and then you throw it on the ground, you're done with it. That's what you do whenever you practice this act outside of marriage. And that's what men do to each other and women do to each other whenever they practice this act. And when we say these things, when we say all things that have been said this morning, when we confront their sin, uh, they will hate us. John 3.20 says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light. Make no mistake, this movement is an enemy of the church. Now, some of you may have friends and relationships with people who support this movement, and it may be cordial, right? You may get along. But the movement as a whole hates God. And as Pastor Dave said a few weeks ago, because they cannot reach God, they will seek to injure us. I think we have a good example of the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade, right? What does the culture already begin saying about the church, that religion is the most destructive thing mankind has ever created. We will be called enemies of democracy if these things are outlawed. We have enemies. What these people practice is idol worship. They worship the creature, as Romans 1 tells us. They worship themselves. They consider themselves to be God and when you tell them that they are not God and that they will answer to the true God who created them and that they are obligated to live a specific way, what you've effectively done is committed blasphemy against their God of self. And they will riot. They will hate you because you are impeding on their liberation, on their expression of self. Joel Beakey speaks to the reality that preaching is to be general and applied particularly to individuals. Right? And when you apply God's word particularly to sinners, it will evoke a negative response unless God grants them repentance. Uh, Beaky goes on to say, When John the Baptist preached generally, Herod heard him gladly. 
but when John applied his preaching particularly, criticizing Herod's adulterous relationship with his brother's wife, he lost his head. We should expect to be persecuted for what we say. The darkness hates light. We belong to God. They belong to the devil. They will hate what we say to them. So what is God's will for us as we have enemies and will likely endure persecution? What is our task as the nations rage against God and his people? It's to obey him, that we would not sin. That's our duty. We cannot control what others do. We should preach the gospel to them and tell them to repent. But we have an obligation to not sin against God, even as we are persecuted. Psalm 119, 83 through 88 says, For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They have almost made an end of me on earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. As the psalmist is persecuted, as they dig pitfalls for him, as they try to kill him, as they try, as they lie about him and speak falsehoods about him, what is his cry to God? He cries out, give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. That ought to be our cry. And in fact, this is Jesus' prayer for his disciples in John 17, 14 through 19, in his high priestly prayer. Jesus, the Son, and his humanity is praying to the Father. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. What a beautiful thought that all who are in Christ have the same head as the disciples had, as the apostles had. Jesus knew what trouble was about to come upon him, and what did Jesus ask of the Father? Not that they be taken from the world, to be removed from this world, but that, they, but that they do not be conformed to the world, but be sanctified. And this is the will of God for every believer to be sanctified, even in the midst of persecution. Now, how does he do this? How are his people sanctified? It is by the Holy Spirit, who is our helper. And how does the Holy Spirit work grace for every trial in the Christian life? It's through the means of grace. We come together to hear the word preached, prayed, sung, and to commune with Christ. It is by these means that we are conformed to Christ. If we want to honor God in tribulation, we ought to come and assemble together. In fact, it's necessary that we come together, especially during, during persecution, to receive instruction, to receive comfort, to be reminded of the promises for us in the gospel, that while the world curses us, we gather together, remember that we are blessed by God. While the world seeks to do us harm, 
we are encouraged by the songs that we sing to each other and the communion we share with Christ at his table and the hearing of his preached word. God's will for all Christians is to be sanctified, especially during persecution. So what type of sins might we fall into? As we are persecuted, what type of sins we fall into this month in particular? Well, the first thing I have is pride. It's ironic, isn't it, that Pride Month is a month that many people become guilty of this sin. One group takes pride in their sinful lifestyles, seeking the approval of men, and others take pride in the fact that they are nothing like them. We exalt ourselves as if we never needed a savior. We exalt ourselves as if straightness is synonymous to holiness. It's not the same thing. Brothers and sisters, as Pastor Dave said, there are way more straight people in hell than homosexuals. While homosexuality is certainly more heinous than other sins, is a sin both against God and his natural law, there may still be sexual sin in our hearts that, even, that can even be committed within marriage, within heterosexual marriage. Make no mistake, we may sin differently, but we are still sinners in need of grace, and we must remember that. If it's not for the purifying blood of Christ, we would all be damned. May it not be said that we become prideful in Pride Month because we think that we are nothing like these people. They need grace the same as we do. The second way that we might sin is hatred. We can hate these people. This is a real danger for us specifically this congregation. This is a bold church. You guys do not care to let your opinions be known. right? You are not afraid to stand up and speak the truth. Many of you are very bold. We know what God has said regarding these practices, and I have no issue telling people what the Bible says. But what we do need to grow in is loving our enemies. And that doesn't mean that we shy away from the truth, right? It's out of love that we present the truth to them. That's how, that's one way that we love them, but we must not hate these people. Hate this movement? Yes. We can hate the ideology behind it. Absolutely. It's godless. It's wicked. It's vile. We should call it what it is, but we must see these individuals as fellow image bearers of God who if they do not repent, they will perish. They will perish if they do not repent. We might be tempted to hate them for many reasons, and for many of us, it's probably not because we hate the sin, but it's because they will make your life increasingly more difficult. This movement is so aggressive that if you do not applaud them and rejoice in their sin, they will seek to have you removed from your job. They want to force you to submit to their rule. Children have been ripped away from the arms of their parents in Canada because they will not affirm the lie that their children can be any gender other than the one they were assigned at birth. We have examples here in this congregation of people who are dealing with issues at work because of this. They want to shape the minds of your children and expose your children to things that they ought not be exposed to you. And for many of us, that's the line. 
For many of us, it's, you can mess with me, but once you start messing with my children or our children, that's when we, we can begin to harbor, these, harbor hatred towards these individuals and try to enact personal vengeance in our hearts towards these people. A righteous anger is acceptable. What they promote is evil, but we must be reminded that we are to love our enemies, that they are, in fact, fellow image bearers. What does it mean to love our enemies? Well, it's by seeking the good of their physical and spiritual well-being. If they are a danger to your children, keep them away, certainly. You need to filter what your kids are hearing and seeing. But at the same time, we are to desire their physical and spiritual good. And again, one of the ways that we love them is by not staying silent on the issue. We must proclaim that they are in rebellion against the Creator. And not only that, but there is salvation freely offered to them in Christ. And hear this, if God does not change their hearts, they will interpret this kind of love as hatred. Because when you attack the sin, now you are attacking the person. Our culture sees sexuality as being so central to who they are that if you attack their behavior, you're attacking the person. They cannot separate the two. So they may very well interpret your love for them as hatred. As much as possible, if they will have you, be a friend to them. Be a true friend to them, someone they can count on, someone that when they are going through hardships, they can come to. If they hate you, may it be because you preach Christ to them. May it not be said that they hate you because of how you treated them. Again, the ideology is worthy of mockery. There's no wisdom in it, and we should expose their foolish actions and thoughts. But when we do these things, we don't do these things just for the sake of winning an argument or to belittle them as people but with hopes that they will see their sin and folly and flee to Christ. We must not hate them. And another thing that we can do is pray for them. We must pray for them. We cannot change their hearts and minds. Again, it doesn't matter how friendly you are with them. If they are to be saved, it can be, it must, and, it must be and can only be by the power of the Holy Spirit working through the gospel preached. These people, many of them are hurting. Many of them endured abuse as children. This is no justification for their sin. It's not a just justification for it, but it is the reality of the matter that these people are lost, they are dying, and they are currently suffering the temporal judgment of God for the rejection of him. Sodomy is an abuse of the body. Throughout history, it has been used as a form of torture, and there are all kinds of health complications that arise from it. Right? These people are hurting, and they need a Savior. They need Christ. They long to fulfill the desires of the flesh, looking for fulfillment, and they will not find it. They will not find it apart from Christ. A good rule of thumb whenever we pray for these people is I think there are some good guidelines when we look to the imprecatory psalms. Right? The imprecatory psalms. These are prayers of judgment on the wicked, and I think there are a few principles that we can keep in mind as we pray that kind of show some of the, the hatred that we might have in our heart for these people. Uh, largely, these psalms and prayers were used against nations and groups, not individuals. The psalmist often refers to groups like the wicked or the evildoers. 
the motivation for these prayers are for the triumph of God's reputation and for his glory. It's for the vindication of God and his people. It's not for personal vengeance. We don't pray for personal vengeance to be acted out on these people. As one pastor said, there's a great difference between vindication and vindicativeness. We pray for the vindication of God's glory and for his church. We don't pray for personal vengeance. Many imprecatory psalms, the psalmist pleads that God would cause the enemy to fear him. That should be our prayer, that these people would fear the Lord. And if it means that there must be shame heaped upon them and harsh judgment to get them to fear God, let that be the case. Let it be so. And lastly, imprecatory psalms are prayers based upon the revealed will of God. God promises to destroy those who reject the truth, and so we pray that those who reject truth would be destroyed, but that we also have an eye to them that they might be saved if they look to Christ in faith, knowing that those who will look to Christ in faith certainly will be saved. We must pray. We must love our enemies. We must pray for our enemies. We pray that God and his church will be vindicated, that these groups will be destroyed, and that individuals would come to Christ and faith. As we do these things, may we turn from our pride. May we repent from our prideful hearts where we exalt ourselves over men. May we turn from personal vengeance and trust that the Lord is the one who brings about justice and pray that Christ would vindicate himself and his church. And as we do all these things, remember that Christ has overcome the world. Christ has overcome the world, that we are his foot soldiers, we are his messengers, this world belongs to Christ, and because it belongs to Christ, we are free to be bold to proclaim these truths to the nations, not fearing death, but knowing that we have access to eternal life in the Son. If you have sinned in any of these ways, if you have prayed out personal vengeance, if you have harbored hate in your heart, if you had pride, repent. Know that there is salvation and grace and mercy for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that Christ died for us. We thank you that our sins have been nailed to the cross on Christ. And we ask that you would forgive us if we have hated our enemies, that you would forgive us if we have held ourselves in high regard as those who are not like our enemies. Lord, show us that apart from Christ, we too would suffer death and damnation. Lord, we ask that you would make us bold to proclaim the truth of your word. Make us bold to share the gospel Lord, we ask that you would bless our ministries, both public and private. Lord, that you would cause those we minister to to turn from their sin, to cast down their idols and look to Christ, the only God who can truly save. Lord, we ask that you would equip this church for this work and for the churches in this area. We ask that you would do these things in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.